0: You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. And for the rest of us, let me invite you to turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. And as you are turning there, if this is your first Sunday with us, we are so glad that you are here to be a part of us as we worship the Lord together as Redemption Church. And if I hadn't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, my name is Justin. I am the lead pastor of Redemption Church. And you picked a great Sunday to come because we are beginning a book study through the book of Philippians that will take us through this fall. And so we're going to be beginning this letter today. And so let's read together now Philippians chapter 1, 1 beginning in verse 1, and we'll go through verse 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we gather this morning as your church, it is our heart's desire, Lord, that Christ would be exalted through the praise of your people this morning. And so, Father, as your word is open and Lord, as we so eagerly await to dive into this precious letter of Paul to the Philippians, Lord, we do so knowing that these words that we just read are your very words, that they are true, that they are inerrant, they are infallible, that they are profitable for the building up of your church. And so, Father, we pray that by your spirit's power, you would do what you've promised your word would do. That it would be a sharp, double-edged sword that that pierces to the very bones and marrow of men and women. And Father, that above all, that the gospel would be shared and proclaimed. And Lord, that we would delight in the redemption we have in Jesus Christ this morning. So Father, we pray now for your spirit to work in us and through us through the proclamation of your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray amen amen so i'm excited about beginning our study through the book of philippians today and you know, I believe expository preaching to be the most effective way to help a church grow in their, their knowledge of Scripture. And so that's one of the key distinctives of Redemption Church, something we value and treasure, is, is we just think it's it's good for the people of God to go verse by verse through books of the Bible together. Because we believe expository preaching helps us all learn how to, to handle Scripture how to interpret it in its own context, how to apply it to our lives. And so I'm particularly excited about beginning the book of Philippians because I I think it's just such a fitting book for a new church plant. You know, a lot of people, when they try to sum up the, the letter to the Philippians with a word, that typical word that's often used is joy. Such a joyous book. Even with how it opens, we almost feel tangibly Paul's affection for this church. So indeed, joy is a key theme in the the book. But yet this book isn't merely about joy, but rather joy that comes from gospel partnership. That when we engage with one another in the body of Christ to see the name of Christ advance, It brings about a sweet joy and fellowship amongst the people of God. And so Paul writes this letter in many ways as an extended thank you note to the church of Philippi for financially partnering with Paul in his missionary work. And and we see that particularly come to play at the end of the letter in chapter 4. But what brings Paul such joy as he writes this letter is the joy that comes in partnering together with this Philippian church and the joy that comes from seeing the gospel advance in the world. So thus, I think Philippians really is a wonderfully fitting book for a new church plant to study together. Because as I think about the, the birth of Redemption Church and God's great kindness to us over these last few months, and as we think about what it means to be a part of that body, to, to see this group of people come together together, to covenant together in membership, to to commit, to join forces together, to see the gospel advance in this city, in the city of Wilson, what joy that brings to our hearts. What joy has that brought to my heart? So as we open up this book of Philippians this morning, we see that in affectionate remembrance, Paul prays for the spiritual growth of the Philippian church. And so from Philippians 1, 1 through 11, here's kind of the, the sermon and a summary. We will discover that our joyous partnership in the gospel produces earnest concern for others' spiritual growth. So as we're focused on the gospels, we're focused on the mission of God. It produces a sweet care and affection for the believers in whom we partner with, and then the Lord uses that to bring about spiritual growth in the lives of of those partnering together. So to put this perhaps as simply as possible, mission leads to deeper community, which leads to deeper maturity. So you see that that trajectory here in the opening of the passage. Mission leads to deeper community, and that deeper community leads to deeper maturity. Maturity. So as we walk through this text, let's look at kind of the opening of this passage in verse 1 through 8. And the first truth I want to draw out for us this morning from the text is let us partner together in the gospel with God. Joy. Let us partner together as a people in the gospel with joy. So the the letter opens up as as much of the letters in the New Testament do with a rather customary greeting. And we see that in the opening uh, few verses here that the author of the letter is identified as Paul and he includes Timothy with him in his greeting to the church. And he identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ or or a slave of Jesus Christ. And he writes to this church, the Philippian church, whom he calls saints. And he also specifically mentions the the elders of the church, the overseers used synonymously and the deacons of that church the leadership of this church. And in verse 2 we see that he gives a blessing to the church as he typically does from God our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And as the body of the letter opens up we see it it opens up so joyously, particularly when you read some of other of Paul's letters, the book of Galatians just opens up with with Paul gut-punching the church in a lot of ways because he's dealing with error. But here we see just Paul in his tender-hearted love and affection for the church right in the opening. Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. He is thankful for this church. He is thankful for the Philippian church. And as he thinks about the church of Philippi, he, he goes down memory lane a little bit. He remembers the time that he had with them. And as he thinks about the time that he's had with the church, as he thinks about the relationship they've had even after he's departed and their partnership with them, he is just filled with joyous gratitude to God for this congregation because Paul has, of course, a history with this church. Indeed, Paul planted this church on his missionary journeys. And so the planting of the church of of Philippi is described in Acts chapter 16. That's where we get the the God-inspired account of the establishment of this church. So let's take a moment and just think through what these remembrances that Paul possesses as he writes the opening of the letter. And And as we do, we'll see the partnership that began to develop in this church. Because in many ways, as Paul was about his missionary work, he did not expect to end up in Philippi. Wasn't on his agenda, wasn't on his plan, because Paul had attempted to go to Asia, but they kept encountering obstacle after obstacle. And so unsure of where to go next, Paul received a vision from a man in Macedonia, urging him to to come over and to, to help him over there. And so upon receiving the vision, Paul was convinced that, well, God's telling us to go to Macedonia, telling us to go to Philippi, right? To, To go and preach the gospel. So immediately, the text says, Paul goes and heads that way. And the first convert that we're told of in the, in the church uh, appears to be a lady by the name of Lydia, of Lydia. And Lydia was a seller of purple cloth, the scripture says, which meant that she was most likely an affluent merchant woman who traded in, in premium goods. Purple was an expensive dye, and so to trade in that was a was an upper-scale type gift, a luxury item, if you will. So Paul's typical missionary strategy, this is kind of the way he typically went about it as he traveled the known world preaching the gospel, is he would enter into a, a new town, And typically, Paul would go into the synagogue, and he would go into the synagogue, and he would give his lecture series on the Messiah from the Old Testament. And he would begin to teach from the Old Testament, and he would keep doing that until they kicked him out when he started talking about Jesus as the promised Messiah, as the Christ. But Paul would usually generate enough interest through teaching that he would gather those who were interested and kind of had their ears perked up when he started talking about Jesus as the Messiah, and he would gather them outside of the synagogue and start teaching them more about what the Scriptures had to say and about how Jesus was the Christ. And we see something like that probably happen in the conversion of Lydia. And so Lydia, we are told, comes to faith, a wealthy Jewish merchant who comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Acts 16, 14 says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and eventually she and her household came to believe and were baptized. So as Paul and Silas continued their missionary work in the city, they also Act sixteen accounts and uh, met a demon possessed servant girl. She was a, a poor, a oppressed soul, enslaved by her owners and. Through her demonic possession, she was given this ability through the demons to be able to to tell fortunes. And so her owners were using her to make money for her ability. So this poor slave girl was just oppressed and About every way imaginable, right? She was possessed by a demon. She was oppressed by the the men who owned her. And so this girl, as Paul is going about doing his missionary work in the city, Paul and Silas, she begins to cry out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she did this for, for several days until Paul, having become greatly annoyed by her interruptions, cast the demon out of her. And her exorcism earned the ire of the men who owned her. Because that, that was their moneymaker, right? They lost their, their business venture was now ruined because Paul exercise this demon out of her in the name of Jesus Christ. And we aren't entirely sure what happened to this girl after her exorcism in Acts 16. The text doesn't explicitly say, but but I suspect that she too was most likely converted because the, the normal pattern we see in the gospel and, and in Acts is that supernatural healing in the name of Jesus Christ tended to bring the supernatural birth along with it. That tends to be the pattern, but we don't know for sure. It's speculation. But but. These miracles attested to the authority and to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when this happened to the slave girl, the the owners were obviously very perturbed and began to rally up the crowds and and the people saying, all right, these guys are being troublemakers. Paul and Silas, they're disturbing the peace. They're teaching these strange new teaching about Jesus Christ. And so they end up being thrown in jail. They end up being thrown in jail. And that led them to another divine appointment in their time in the city of Philippi. And that was with the Philippian jailer. I'm sure you might have heard of him before. Paul and Silas were in prison, but even though they were in chains, their joy was not deterred in, in the slightest. And so Acts account recounts how they were singing in the jail cells praises to the Lord. And eventually, an earthquake set the two men free. And for a jailer, if you lost a criminal a, a criminal, or if, if, if somebody under your care broke out of jail, your life was on the line. You would be executed for your failure to, to guard the prison. And so the jailer upon this earthquake irkway, irkway just panics. He knows that the, Paul and Silas, they're going to get out, they're going to leave, they're going to run away, and my neck is going to be on the line, literally. So the Philippian jailer prepares to kill himself, to commit suicide, but yet, astonishingly, Paul and Silas are still there, and they say, don't harm yourself, for we are all here. And astonished, the jailer runs in and asks Paul and Silas, sirs, what must I do to be safe And they shared the gospel with him, and he believed, along with the rest of his family. And the next day, Paul and Silas were released by the magistrates and forced to leave the city. But we're told in Acts 16.40 that they met a final time and visited with Lydia in particular and the other brothers from the new church, and they departed. Now, it's these memories that are on Paul's mind as he's writing the opening of the letter. I'm sure they're flooding back as he writes to this letter of this Philippian church, this ragtag group of people who were saved by Jesus Christ. He remembers, right, how the gospel had, had come in power and how God, by his grace, birthed this new church in Philippi, how God sovereignly intervened in even redirecting Paul to this city. If, if Paul never had that vision from God, this church wouldn't even exist more than likely. And so Paul's remembering all that has taken place. And through his missionary efforts, God has birthed this new community, this new church. And this community came to mean a great deal to Paul. Because they quickly jumped on and partnered with Paul in his missionary efforts. They gave generously to help support him out on the mission field. They would uh, send Epaphroditus with their gift to go and help minister to, to his need. They loved Paul. They had a partnership with him. And it was a partnership that continued even through all of the difficulties of Paul's trials as a missionary. Through thick and thin the Philippian church continued to support, pray for, and encourage their missionary founding pastor. And so this gets to the true locus, right, of why Paul writes with such joy in the opening verses here. Because he writes not only joyfully remembering the powerful work of God in forming the Philippian church, but he prays with joy because of their continued partnership as they share in the gospel. Look at verse 5, right? I thank my God, we'll start in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He is so grateful, and as he thinks about them, as he he prays for them, joy just kind of comes up in his heart. He's just so grateful for this church and the partnership that they share together. And their gospel partnership has sweetened Their fellowship with one another. The original word for partnership is is koinonia, meaning fellowship, or what we have in common. This word also communicates the idea of participation. It's an intimate word. And as Paul uses it, we see that God has brought them into this sweet fellowship. From the very first day of the church until now, that sweet community of partnership endures. And so from the very beginning of the Philippian church, they were bound together on mission for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what they were about. And this partnership deepened the bond between Paul and the Philippian church. And so as he writes to them, he's almost overflowing in joy. He, he says, it's right for me to feel this way in verse 7. Why? Because I hold you in my heart. What an endearing phrase. It talks about how he yearns for the church with the affection of Christ Jesus. One of the things we see just in these opening verses is that Paul loves these people. He loves this church. He's thankful for them. So as Paul prays for them, he he does so with joy joy because he has such affectionate care for the church and he prays in confidence for them doesn't he in verse 6 he prays in confidence knowing that that God is going to finish what he has begun in this church God finishes what he started praise the Lord that God by his sovereign will shall complete the work of grace in the life of the members of the church and he will do so for all who put their faith in Jesus Christ And looking forward to that great day of the Lord, right? That day that will come when Christ returns. Paul looks on with expectant joy in seeing the completion of their maturity. And he prays for that. So in these opening verses, we can see a lot of these themes begin to weave together here, right? That mission leads to the forming of a deepening community. And that community prays for and encourages deeper maturity that if we partner together in Christ as believers for the cause of Jesus Christ in the world, then community and the fellowship of Redemption Church will be remarkably sweet. It will. Because this occurs that when we live together and when we live in light of what we have in common, which is Christ Jesus our Lord, who is the foundation of the church, and so when we become focused on our mission. As a people, when we become focused on taking the good news of Jesus Christ to the world, that partnership produces beautiful Christian fellowship. Beautiful Christian fellowship. And though this beautiful gospel fellowship ought to happen in every local church over the years, it tragically doesn't always occur, does it? particularly if you've been in church for a while and you've heard stories, a lot of times churches don't have that beautiful, sweet, affectionate care for each other like we see here in Philippians chapter one. So when a church begins to focus on themselves, that's when fellowship erodes. That's when it happens. When we stop working in partnership together on the mission of God, then selfishness erupts. Fighting springs up and squabbling dominates the church. When brothers fight against a common enemy in the trenches of God's kingdom for the glory of Christ, then those brothers will become kindred spirits, right? Through fire, through tribulation, we're working together for the name of Jesus Christ in the trenches of ministry. But when brothers fight in the barracks, they turn each other into enemies. So when we truly focus on partnering in the gospel ministry together for the mission of God, when that's the focus of our church, and that's what we want our focus to be, then spirit-wrought community will be the inevitable result. That's what happens. So if you've ever been on a short-term mission trip before, I'm sure you've probably experienced this in intensity. Short-term mission trips are like a pressure cooker for a Christian community. They really are. So when you go overseas, you're in a new place, It's strange, it's uncomfortable, nobody speaks your language, and so you're with just a few people, perhaps from your church or from your team, and and with those people, you spend every waking minute together, partnering together, praying together, studying the Bible together, preaching the gospel together, working together. And so that 24-7 partnership produces almost instant community, doesn't it? people who are practically strangers at the beginning of the trip, they leave as your best friends when you come home. Now, how does that happen? Why does that happen? I think it's the same principle we see here in Paul's affection for the church, fleshed out, that as we partner together in the gospel, seeing the name of Christ advance, sacrificing so that the gospel might advance, and when we do that together, joyous care and affection for each other just comes about. The Spirit brings it in our lives. And I think this, again, is so important as we think about Redemption Church and what we pray God is doing here, that we have partnered together as a people to see Redemption Church formed. And now we have partnered together to see Redemption Church reach our community, reach the city of Wilson. And the more that we remain committed to the mission of God, the sweeter our fellowship will become the sweeter it will become. The more we remain committed to Christ's work, the deeper our community will be. But disobedience to our mission begins to turn the church inwardly. We begin to retreat to the barracks. And when a church leaves the trenches of God's kingdom and begins to cloister in the barracks, gossip and backbiting erupt just out of sheer boredom. (laughs) Because <laughs> nothing to do, we need an enemy to fight. Why not fight each other? And that's what tends to happen. So if we're focused on Christ, if we have that focus, that laser focus on Jesus and making much of Jesus and reaching people for Jesus and growing in Jesus, we're not going to have time to squabble. <laughs> we're going to have time to fight. There's a mission to be won. There are people to reach. And so as we partner together, that community of the church will grow sweeter and sweeter, our fellowship more and more intimate, as we work together to advance the gospel. And this is kind of the irony of the fact, right, of Christian community, the, the, the mystery of the way it works, the counterintuitiveness of it, is that Christian community grows the less you focus on it, and the more you focus on God's mission. So the less we focus on, art, right, we've got to build a sweet community here, the more you kind of analyze that and get obsessed about that and you know you just start turning inward and before long community's not really happening. <laughs> But the more you actually focus on the mission, on Christ, on seeing him made known in the city, community is just going to happen. You won't be able to stop it. The spirit will just begin to bring that about as we're partnering together for the gospel. So church, may you and I, may we, may we buckle down on the mission that God has given us in Christ. And may we not grow weary in our partnership together for the gospel, but may we look to Christ And may we look to him with zeal, with passion, with fervor to see his name proclaimed in this community and beyond. There's a lot of work to do in the city of Wilson, North Carolina. There's a lot of work to do in our state, in our country, in our world. We will never exhaust the work that needs to be done and the people that need to be reached as a congregation. So let's focus on that. Let's focus on seeing Christ proclaim because true community emerges out of a people who work together on a common mission for Christ. So as we partner together in the gospel, our care, our affection, our love for one another will only grow more and more and more through the years. And that leads to the second principle I want to draw out for us, this application is let us pray for one another to grow in love with knowledge. The contents of Paul's prayer for the church is in verse 9 through 11 in the text before us. And as Paul is praying for the church, remember he's praying with joy for them. Every prayer, verse 4, and then verse 9, we begin to see what what that prayer really looks like. And it's a beautiful prayer filled with incredible insight into how we actually grow spiritually. How does that happen? How do we grow more mature? Because as Paul is so overjoyed by his partnership with the Philippian church and their partnership together, he prays this beautiful prayer for them that they would grow in maturity, that they would grow in wisdom and knowledge of God and love. So there is a logical flow to Paul's prayer for the church. And in that logical flow, there's great insight into how not only we should be praying for each other, but how you and I actually grow in Christ and maturity. So first we see he prays for love with knowledge. Love with knowledge. Look at verse 9. He says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. With knowledge and discernment. Discernment. You see, Paul, as he teaches on Christian maturity, he knows that it occurs when love grows in measure with knowledge and discernment. Love grows together with knowledge and discernment. So Paul sees the the head and the heart of the Christian life intricately connected, tied together. And that we ought to be growing in both if we are to be really mature in Christ. That if you grow in knowledge if you grow in theological precision, if you grow in analytical skill, but not in love, then you will treat Jesus as an object to be studied and not a God to be worshipped. However, if you grow in love, but you fail to grow in your knowledge of the truth, your love will be amorphous, foolish, misguided, you see, love and knowledge must grow together, abounding more and more over the course of our Christian lives. Because if we're not growing equally in both, love and knowledge, then you will be disproportioned Christians. And that's unhealthy. Have you ever been to a funhouse mirror before? You know, and you go up to one of those mirrors and you just get, they make you look all weird. They make you look bigger, they make you skinner, they make your head blow up, Right? And if we're not careful, if we're not focused on growing in both of these areas in our lives, as a Christian, you're going to look a little bit like a funhouse mirror. You're going to look out of proportion. We want to grow in both. Because in knowledge without love, you will, of course, perk up at theological debate. You'll get excited about that. But you will be callous in your ridicule of others for their lack of knowledge. Sure, you can expound upon difficult doctrines, but these doctrines have yet to really grip your heart. Thus, your knowledge is actually lacking because you fail to allow these truths that you know they have yet to grip your heart and to change your heart. And so these sort of Christians tend to be arrogant, condescending, elitist, and judgmental. But however, if you grow in love but not knowledge... That also leads to dangerous distortions. You will be eager to show love to others, and your emotions will be engaged heavily in your worship of God. However, you will end up becoming ruled by your emotions in worship. And you will end up accepting what God has, in fact, forbidden. Your emotions will rule you rather than the word of God. And you will be dangerously prone to error, easily stepped away by your, by your culture, because you will not be rooted in the truth of God's word. Therefore, your love is actually lacking, because you've yet to allow truth to define what it means to love. See, these sorts of Christians who love and who have failed to grow in truth, they tend to be whimsical, unstable, and wobbly. So in our pursuit of Christian maturity and spiritual maturity, we must grow in both areas. In both areas. If not, we will continue to be plagued by spiritual immaturity. So we must pursue a deeper love for God, as Paul prays, right? A love that abounds more and more, that's increasing. But that love must be accompanied also with knowledge and all discernment. So let me me ask you, as you look at your own Christian life this morning, what are you lacking in? Are you growing in love and neglecting knowledge? Are you growing in knowledge and neglecting love? May we pray that the Lord would help us grow equally in both. That should be our prayer. If you're like me, you tend to be stronger in one area and weaker in another. And so constantly praying before the Lord to help me grow in, in both. And that's one of the reasons why we need one another. Because there will be those of us who are more prone and grow faster in love than we do in knowledge. And there will be others of us who grow faster in knowledge than we do in love. We need each other to sharpen each other, to correct one another, to help one another grow in both areas. So that's the... Paul's prayer, right? He's praying for them to grow in in love with knowledge and all discernment. And we see what that knowledge and discernment brings about in the second aspect of his prayer here, right? That they might approve what is excellent. Look at verse 10. Grow in love more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Why? So that you may approve what is excellent. As we grow in both knowledge and love, then we will have an ability to see what is truly excellent, what is truly good. That as our love grows and as our knowledge sharpens, we will be able to perceive what is truly valuable in life. That our perspective begins to change as we grow in Christian maturity. and We begin to see the folly of loving the world and the things of the world. And Christ and his wisdom will become an increasing treasure to our hearts and to our souls you see with maturity comes perspective and with that perspective we can see what is truly excellent what is truly valuable that as we grow in christian maturity our spiritual palate will expand and we can relish in the sweetness of the things of god That if you're growing in Christ and knowledge and in love, then, then what will happen is that spiritual matters, holiness, righteousness, grace, all of those things will be of an increasing delight to your soul. So with Christian maturity comes focus. And with that focus, we can truly see what's worth living for. And that person is Jesus Christ. He is who we live for. And as we grow, we we come to value holiness. We want it in our lives. We want to be pure. We want to be righteous. And so we begin to forsake what is worldly, forsaking the comforts of this world that ultimately distract us from our godly purpose. So as we grow in love and knowledge, we are able to more clearly look to Christ who is truly excellent in every way and thus he begins to captivate our heart and our attention. And that leads to the third aspect of the prayer that Paul mentions here, is growing in holiness. Growing in holiness. Look at verse 11, right? Oh, excuse me, in the verse 10. So that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So here's, here's the pattern, right? Here's the, the flow of how Paul is praying for the spiritual maturity of this church, that as we become transfixed by the beauty and glory of Christ as the one who is truly excellent, our lives will come to be defined by holiness. By holiness. What we behold, we become. And the more our hearts are captivated by the beauty of Christ, the more we will become like him In holiness, So Paul makes that connection, right, between approving what is excellent and so being pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So as we gaze upon Christ, we will come to long for further righteousness in our heart and in our lives, and we will become increasingly discontent with the sinful flesh that lingers in within us. We will long to put that sin to death, to grow in righteousness. That will be our heart's desire. And so, as we seek Christ, who is the true ultimate treasure of our hearts, he will become to us increasingly beautiful. As we grow in love towards him and knowledge towards him, and we will be holy as he is holy. The Christian faith is one of desire, it's one of desire, of affections. This is what drives our hearts that as we grow in knowledge and love, thus approving what is truly excellent, what is truly valuable, what is truly beautiful, we will find ourselves pursuing holiness in Christ with increasing intensity. We long to please him. We will long to express to him our love, to worship him, to be like him. And this heartfelt earnestness that the Spirit produces within us, it will compel us to grow in Christian maturity. So that our lives would be filled, as Paul prays, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Even as Paul acknowledges that the ultimate source of that righteousness is Jesus Christ himself. And this is the interesting dynamics we see in the Christian life. That over the course of our Christian maturity, we will find ourselves becoming increasingly sanctified. That's the goal, right? To become more like Christ. But thus, that righteousness begins to be exhibited in the way you and I live our lives. It should. We should be able to see it in the way we live our lives as Christians. But nevertheless, Paul says, our righteousness always comes from Jesus Christ. We have received an imputed righteousness. Given the righteousness of Christ, even as we've been given his righteousness, Christ's righteousness is now producing righteousness within us. So the ultimate source for all of our righteousness comes from Christ. But that righteousness begins to have its effect and shape us and mold us as we exhibit righteousness in our Christian lives. We are justified by faith alone in Christ alone, but the imputed righteousness of Christ causes us to grow in righteousness. So the Christian life is one of being and becoming. We both are righteous, this is who you are right now in Christ Jesus, that if you've turned from your sins, if you've trusted in Christ as your Savior and Lord, you are justified, you have the righteousness of Christ, you will be accepted by God on the grounds of Christ's righteousness, not your own. That never changes. But, but yet, this is who you are now, but yet we are becoming righteous over the course of our lives. And Paul acknowledges here, Christ gets the praise for both of those works, (laughs) for all of the work of salvation, right? Not just for justification, but for sanctification as well. The Christian life is one of being and becoming. And that leads to the fourth aspect of this prayer, right? That as they grow in spiritual maturity, he's praying for this church, he's laboring, he's desiring to see maturity in them. The ultimate goal is worship, Is worship. So in the Paul's final phrase in this prayer at the end of verse 11, we see the the doxological conclusion that results from a sanctified life. Look at what he says, verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's the aim, right? That God would be glorified through his work of redemption that God has saved us by his grace for his own glory, and as we grow in holiness and purity, and as that work is brought to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, God will be glorified through it. See, God's plan of redemption stretches all the way back to the very foundations of the earth, and there God determined that he would redeem a fallen humanity through his son, and that he would form them into a holy people for his own possession, for his own glory so therefore God is fashioning us in Christ to be fitting worshipers as he's growing us in Jesus so the Christian life has as its end doxology worship praise this is the end result of God's grace in our lives it is this is the purpose for which we exist it is why God created us to love and to know God and thus experiencing complete satisfaction and rest in him and that is what brings glory to God. And that's what God is doing in the Christian life, in your life, if you know Christ. So, so you can see from Paul's prayer here that his passionate concern for the spiritual growth of this church that he loves so deeply, that as he's partnered with them on mission, a beautiful community of love has formed in their relationship together in this community, so care, so love, so delights in one another and their care for one another that joyous prayers are lifted up for the spiritual growth and maturity of the church. You see, Paul, in his earnestness and his love and his affection for the church, he prays for the spiritual growth of this body. So let me ask you this. Are you praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ like Paul prayed for his? Are you praying for the other members of this congregation? That if you're a covenant member of Redemption Church, are you praying for the people of this body in the same way Paul prayed for the Philippian Church? That as you think about other members of this body, are you filled with joy when you think about them? Are you expressing that joy by praying for them in these deeply meaningful ways for their spiritual growth? Are you praying that God would use them and that their lives might be lived to the glory of God and that they would grow both in knowledge and love to God? Are you praying that that they would have the wisdom from God to discern what is truly excellent, truly valuable, truly praiseworthy, thus growing in holiness and righteousness? If not, let's start praying these things for one another and work twer- towards these in one another's lives, not just through prayer, but as we're engaged in one another's lives, let's disciple one another towards that end of growing in Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so we've seen this order throughout this opening text here, right? That, that mission, community, maturity, Mission, community, maturity. The more we partner together sacrificially to fulfill Christ's mission, the more intimate and joyful the church community will be. And the more joyous and intimate that community will be, the more we will pray and encourage one another to press on in Christian maturity. A missions-minded, great commission, gospel-centered church will have a sweetness to it that cannot be manufactured through human engineering. gospel focus produces gospel community and gospel maturity. So perhaps you are here this morning and and you long to be a part of a community like the one I've described from this text, a community that truly loves one another. This morning, if you don't know Christ, there's an invitation. Christ offers you an invitation on the grounds of his atoning death and his victorious resurrection. He offers you forgiveness of sins. So that you might be justified and made righteous as you come to him, turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And that invitation also includes an invitation into true community. It's an added bonus, a gift, right? That not only does Jesus save you from your sins, and not only does he make you right and call you unto himself, he also gives you a community to belong called the church. Of people that love you and care for you and that watch out for your soul. And if that's you, I urge you to trust in Christ today if you don't know him. And as God saves you, he will partner you with this church that will love you and care for you. And perhaps this morning, some of you know Christ, you know Jesus, but you have not been connected to the local church. You aren't living in partnership with, with anyone. Rather, you're living the Christian life in isolation. Friend, if that's you, that is not what God intends for your soul. The local church is an incredible gift to help you grow in Christ. And if you neglect the church, you will be left spiritually anemic, weak, frail. So perhaps this day, you need to repent of your neglect of the church, of your failure to partner with a body. Maybe today the Lord is challenging you to commit yourself to a local church, perhaps this church, Redemption Church. Perhaps what you need to do today as you respond to this text is to commit to getting involved here at Redemption Church, to join a community group, which is that next step you need to take to get connected to community, to partner with others, and to begin to pray about the possibility of becoming a covenant member of this body where you commit yourselves to If that's something the Lord is leading you to do, we would love to talk to you about that. Of course, you can stop by the welcome table, get connected to a community group. But I'd be happy to speak to you just about Redemption Church and about how you can get connected. It's something we would love to talk with you about. But maybe this morning you do know Christ, and maybe you are connected to the local church in a meaningful way. And if that's you, then there's a call for us as well. Keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your eyes focused on his mission. And as we do, the sweetness of our community together will only grow deeper and deeper as we press in to the knowledge and love of Christ. So, so church, may we be devoted to praying for one another in this way. And remember that gospel partnership versus gospel community, which produces gospel maturity. Let's pray together.